listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's Season 5, Ohio v. the World. Our season on Ohio and the presidency rolls on. It's Episode 9, Warren G. Harding vs. the World. And today we're going to talk about Ohio's last president. This fall is the centennial anniversary of Marion, Ohio's Warren Gamaliel Harding's election. Warren G. We'll visit his hometown of Marion in north-central Ohio, about 45 miles north of Columbus, We'll check out the new Harding Presidential Center. Uh, it's a site managed by the Ohio History Connection, which I sit on the board of. Super exciting project. And we sit down with Sherry Hall, the site manager of the Presidential Center in the historic home. Back in 2017, I was invited to speak with the uh, Columbus Rotary Club, and I decided on a topic of Warren Harding. I didn't know much about our 29th president at the time, but he's a member of the Rotary, a Rotarian. So they're having me come over, so it seemed on brand. I delved into this project thinking, this is going to be a bad president, let's find out why. And what I found kind of shocked me. This guy won a massive landslide victory 100 years ago. He was incredibly popular, took over an economy that was on the brink of a depression following World War I, a country recovering from a great influenza pandemic that killed 675,000 Americans, and brought us what he called normalcy. His word, not mine, and we'll discuss it later. But the jump, you know, he jump-starts the economy and sparked the Roaring Twenties. He initiated an international peace conference. He released a number of wrongly imprisoned political prisoners. He went, you know, went to the Deep South, and he called them out to their face on their racism. So why is this guy ranked in, like, the bottom five or six in all the presidential rankings? We'll talk about that. But the title of my presentation to the Rotary that, that morning was called Warren G. Harding, Not the Worst President Ever? Question mark. There's some scandals, personal and political. We'll talk about all that with our four guests today. I'm excited to bring you the full picture of Warren Harding, not the version of his presidency that the country has accepted as the truth for the last 100 years. We've been looking forward to, to bringing you guys this episode all season long. It's the 100th anniversary of, of the last Ohio president. We're going back to the Roaring Twenties, the age of prohibition, jazz, flapper girls, women's suffrage, and we look at the election where two Ohioans ran against each other for the White House. Mount Up, it's Episode 9, Warren G. Harding versus the World. Warren Gamaliel Harding was born six months after the Civil War ended in rural north-central Ohio, and he would become the leader of a new generation. Our first guest, Sherry Hall, the site manager at the Harding Presidential Center, tells us about the early years of our 29th president. Warren Harding very much is a country boy. He uh, is born in a little tiny village of Blooming Grove, Ohio, which is near Mansfield, Ohio, if that means anything to anyone. The village was founded by his uh, great-grandfather, and for a long time, informally, it was known as Harding Corners. So he grows up surrounded by relatives, uh, aunts and uncles and grandparents and lots of cousins 
the Harding family is a very big family and um, grew up very happily in Blooming Grove. Warren Harding moves to Marion, Ohio in his teens. He buys the local paper, the Marion Daily Star, it was called. In his early 20s, he meets a divorcee, Florence Kling. Despite a rivalry with her powerful businessman father, Amos Kling, him and Warren straight up hated each other, but he falls in love with his daughter, Florence. He called her the Duchess. Because she managed the household, she even became essential in running the newspaper. Our second guest is a repeat guest from multiple previous episodes, as knowledgeable about Warren Harding as anyone in the country. We welcome back to the show James Robinault, accomplished attorney in Cleveland uh, and author of the 2009 book, The Harding Affair, Love and Espionage During the Great War. Uh, excellent book, and we'll talk about The Harding Affair throughout the episode. You can check the show notes. There's a link to buy that book. I strongly encourage you to do that. And we asked Jim just about young Warren Harding, his new wife and future first lady, Florence. Florence Kling was five years older than Warren Harding. She had been married to a guy named DeWolf, uh, very young, uh, 18 years old, 19 years old. She gets pregnant. Um, they are married. He's kind of a ne'er-do-well, um, and he has severe alcoholic problems, and he'll die from that at a young age. But they get divorced. She has this, this child, the oldest daughter of one of the richer guys in town, Amos Kling was his name. She becomes enamored with Warren Harding, they, they roller skate together at the local roller skate rink in Marion. And he's somebody who's kind of a country kid come in from Blooming Grove, um, where his father was a, you know, a country doctor. And he comes into town, he buys the local newspaper and gets started. But um, I think in some ways, their partnership is one of him looking to some stability that she has in um, they have kind of a, a close personal partnership. And over time, it really is, is becomes kind of asexual from everything that he, he wrote to Carrie Phillips. So in some ways, they were a good business match and a good partnership match and a good political match, <clears throat> but they were not very good as married partners. Um, they don't have any kids. Um, it's one of the reasons he believes he can't have kids is she never gets pregnant. You know, she helps him with his business with, and helps him grow and build the Marion Star. She's kind of like a, a business person who takes care of distribution. And they build that house on Mount Vernon. I think they got married in that house. I think they built it and then got married in that little lobby right there. Disliked very much by her father. Her father believes that he has African-American blood. So that's one of the things that he holds against him. Um, and he just really doesn't doesn't want her to have another failed relationship. Um, and I don't think he comes to their wedding. I, I, I don't believe that he or his wife come, come to when she marries when, uh, Warren Harding. So, and when he dies, <clears throat> I just to give you an idea, in 1913, Harding wrote a letter about, you know, how he was kind of in a glum mood. And the reason he was in a glum mood was that death had been around and his father-in-law had died. And <clears throat> he actually compares him to a snake. Um, so, I mean, there was no love loss between the two of them. They were, it was, it was a bad relationship from the start. Warren Harding is still the only president to come from the media. It's kind of surprising. He buys the Marion Star at like 19 years old. Our guest Sherry Hall talks about the skills of being an editor that led him to becoming a politician who could hear both sides of an issue. But there's also his experience as a small business owner that resonated with supporters Helped him understand those kitchen table issues, you know, that 
Americans face even today. Sherry talks about how Harding and the Marion Star, a fledgling newspaper, was built into a success. It's a newspaper that still exists today. Harding buys the Marion Star, which had been tossed around uh, to a lot of different people, um, never successfully. Um, he buys it at the age of 19. His family had moved to Marion, so his father, uh, who had become a doctor by then, and his mother also was a homeopathic physician, and he pegs his future to the star. He, when he buys the star, it, it is called the Marion Daily Star, but it's never been a daily to that point. It was just published whenever the current owner could manage to get it out the door. Um, he vows it will be a daily paper, except for Sunday, and he sets to work trying to establish it. Uh, it's tough, it's tough work. For, for many years, he's barely making a nickel, and what comes into his pocket goes right back out. It's not an immediate jump into politics for Warren Harding, but when he visits the 1888 Republican National Convention, he gets the political bug, and he starts making speeches across the Midwest and even on the East Coast. He's a Republican. He's a good speaker, very self-effacing speaker, speaks in real plain terms, and he gets to start in active politics uh, around the age of 30, when he goes on the campaign trail for President William McKinley's successful run in 1896. He parlays his relationship with McKinley's campaign manager and the political kingpin Mark Hanna. Uh, Hanna, we've done an entire episode on him last season, Ohio versus Water. Go listen to that one. But Hanna backs him for the state Senate in Ohio, and he wins easily. He quickly moves up the ladder and becomes lieutenant governor in 1903 with then-governor Myron Herrick. Jim Robinall tells us about Harding's rising stock within the party as a speaker, and he's even selected by President Taft to give his nominating speech at the raucous 1912 Republican National Convention. We'll discuss the craziness of that 1912 election between Taft, Teddy Roosevelt, who left the party, formed the Bull Moose Party, and the eventual winner, Democratic uh, New Jersey Governor Woodrow Wilson. But Jim tells us about Harding's speech for Taft in Chicago and how it's interrupted multiple times by fights in the audience albeit kind of a disaster, not really his fault, it does raise Harding's stock nationally. Very good public speaker. He was one of the most sought after speakers in the, what was called the Chautauqua Circuit, uh, which was um, you know, based on Chautauqua, New York, where they had people come speak in the summers in this big amphitheater that is still there. He had great sense of humor. Um, he was very self-deprecating, but he also knew his history and liked to give talks on, for example, one of his heroes was Alexander Hamilton. And he had these great talks they would give her on Napoleon. Um, but he was, he had a beautiful style. He had a great voice. Uh, and he was very charming in his speaking style. So he was very much sought after and was paid a lot of money to go do those Chautauqua tours, as they were called in the summer. Well, Taft asked him to give his nominating speech in 1912. And for people to remember, Taft had been elected as president. Uh, in 1908, uh, he, he, had, uh, he had been the successor that Teddy Roosevelt wanted. And then Teddy Roosevelt turned on him. He just couldn't stand not being president. Taft was, you know, the regular part, Republican Party nominee as the president, and Harding delivered his speech. But when Harding got up to speak, the Taft forces were already put together, or the Roosevelt forces were already put together to bolt the convention to leave and start the Bull Moose Party. So when he got up to speak, it was just interrupted by 
fights in the audience. And I mean, just a real um, remarkable thing where the, the chairman of the convention had to continually intervene and say, now stop, stop this, let this guy finish his speech. Um, so Taft was very much in his debt for taking up, as they used to say, the cudgels on his behalf. Um, and, but the speech was interrupted multiple, multiple times. And that's when all the uh, Roosevelt supporters walked out and formed, formed the Bull Moose Party. As Harding's political star rises in the first decade of the 20th century, he has a secret. He's having a love affair with his neighbor's wife, Carrie Phillips. Carrie would become a major part of Harding's life and his political future. The love letters of Warren Harding to Carrie Phillips would become national news when they're finally released in 2014. You might remember hearing about them. We'll talk with Jim Robinault about that um, and about the relationship and how that becomes a central issue in his great book, The Harding Affair, in 2009. But first we asked Jim if Carrie is the love of, of Warren Harding's life, why doesn't he get a divorce from Florence Harding? You know, those are great questions. I mean, Carrie Phillips is his married neighbor, married to Jim Phillips. Um, she's about nine years younger than he is. Um, they, the Phillipses and the Hardings are friends. Uh, they actually go to Europe together in like 1909 and vacation for a couple months in Europe. But he starts a relationship with her in 1905. And it kind of begins as this flirtation between the two of them at the time. Florence Harding was sick, as she was always sick. She had a bad kidney, and it would flare up and swell and cause enormous pain and put her in bed for months on end. And so Harding always believed that she would predecease him um, because she had this severe problem with her kidneys. And uh, she was in that state, having just had an operation in 1905, recovering, Jim Phillips, on the other hand, had gone to the Battle Creek Sanitarium at Harding's suggestion because he was completely depressed over the death of one of their of their only son, um, who died as like a two-year-old kid. Um, and so he was away. Florence was indisposed. The two of them kind of found each other in that crisis moment. And they clearly uh, loved each other. And it was a very romantic relate relationship. Neither one of them felt that they could leave their spouses at the time. It was, it was, you know, it was a difficult thing back then to get divorced. Warren Harding is elected to the U.S. Senate from Ohio in 1914. He wins by a pretty large margin. Ohio is still a very important state, even more so than it is today politically. Jim's book discovered these letters to Carrie Phillips, all of Harding's letters and his papers. Uh, they were burned by Florence after his death. So it's a very unfortunate decision she made based on I'm sure factors uh, that we will discuss later. But the burning of those papers is a huge reason why Harding's legacy is so tarnished following his death. But his letters to Carrie survived. Jim found letters that seemed to indicate that Carrie was blackmailing Harding to not run for president in 1916. Whether she wanted him to leave public life so they could be together, whether she was upset and was going to release the letters, we talked to Jim about Harding's decision not to seek the nomination in 1916 and how that decision might have changed the world. Wilson wins the 1916 election by only 23 electoral votes. That's razor thin. He won California by 3,800 votes. Had that been flipped, he would have lost to Charles Evans Hughes. Wilson barely wins Ohio, and that could have changed everything as well. And the Democrats were not as strong as the Republicans at the time, 
and as you know from your own history, the you know the Ohio presidents dominated the presidency from the Civil War on, and so. In 1916, Wilson had a tough battle to maintain the presidency. And he, we still weren't in the war. He had kept us out of the war. Um, but, you know, it was very likely the Republicans were going to win if they put up a strong candidate. Harding was someone who was on the horizon because he had won in 1914 his senatorship um, against uh, a Democrat. He, by like 100,000 votes, which is a lot back yeah. then, he was immediately thought of as presidential timber. So he clearly had an inside track to get the nomination in 2016 if he really wanted it. And because Roosevelt was out of the picture, uh, you know, having just split the party in, in uh, 1912. So he had that inside track and he was picked as the keynote speaker. So everything was going for him, except Carrie Phillips did not want him to run for president. She wanted him to get out of public life and to get back to marrying and the two of them to move on with their lives um, together at some point. So she had his letters. She was very pro-German. She had lived in Berlin for three years, right. um, in part because of all the gossip in Marion. She took her daughter there to get educated, became very pro-German. And so... The letters clearly indicate that she was threatening him to give the letters to the Germans to undercut him if he tried for that nomination. And he wrote a letter saying, rest assured, you know, I'm not going to run. And he didn't. Um, he kind of poorly performed at that convention um, and walked away from all of it. He clearly, had he got the nomination, he clearly would have defeated Wilson. Wilson won because he took Ohio in uh, 1916 which had 24 electoral votes at the time, and was very important. Those votes would have gone to Harding, the election would have gone to Harding. In fact, he would have won in a big way, as he did four years later in 1920, with one of the biggest margins ever. That would have changed the world. The world. I mean, the what-if scenario of Warren Harding being president in 1916 is, to me, one of the more fascinating what-ifs in American history. parts of Jim's book we're just not going to share because we want you to buy it. Uh, the Harding Fair, Love and Espionage During the Great War. But he enters this world of the Harding love, love letters and it's Jim's in this world of subterfuge and secrets and the letters don't come to light uh, originally until the 1960s. We asked Jim about getting the letters himself, how they led to his book in 2009. And they were released to the public after an agreement with the Harding family five years after Jim's book came out in 2014. And those letters caused quite a stir. These letters were discovered in her house when she died. Her lawyer found them. And they eventually found their way to the Ohio Historical Society, where a guy there who was an archivist, and his name was Ken Duckett, uh, took microfilm pictures of them because he was concerned they were going to be destroyed by the Hardings uh, if they ever got a hold of them. And so he made microfilms. He sent them all around the country to... Uh, get him out of Marion and get him out of uh, Columbus uh, for safekeeping. And one of those bootleg copies found its way to the Western Reserve Historical Society here in Cleveland years later when somebody was going through their papers and they got this. And then the guy who was the archivist of the Western Reserve Historical Society asked me 
uh, to come out and take a look at the microfilm in 2004 because I was doing a seminar on Ohio and its presidents when Dick Cheney and John Edwards debated here in Cleveland. We're getting a first look at some of the love letters that President Warren G. Harding wrote what? to his mistress a century ago. Page after page of Harding's handwriting describe in detail what he described as his eager, passion-wild, jealous, reverent, wistful love for his neighbor's wife. As we rejoin Harding's political story, it's spring 1917. The country's going to war in Europe. On April 6, 1917, after listening to a speech from President Wilson to a joint session of Congress, the Congress declares war. Nearly two million Americans would join the world conflagration in Europe. Wilson proclaims that we must make the world safe for democracy. You can go listen to one of our earliest episodes, Ohio versus Death, about World War I flying ace from Columbus, Eddie Rickenbacker. We talk more about the decision to enter World War I and what it was really like for the Americans. But Harding's not so sure about the reasoning. He's not completely against going to war, but he doesn't believe that America should be in the business of regime change. As Jim pointed out, he would have been very much against the war in Iraq, and a huge part of the American public agreed with him in 1917. We were an isolationist nation. Many did not see how this faraway war and its huge casualty numbers would serve the American interest. Sherry Hall talks to us about Senator Harding and the decision to enter the Great War. Warren gave a pretty interesting speech on the floor of the Senate um, when the vote was to be made. Uh, he is not really buying Woodrow Wilson's, his statement that we have to make the world safe for democracy. He's saying we go to war to protect American interests. He looks at it much differently um, in that if our interests are threatened in some way, then yes, we should be involved. He's not making this global statement that yes, we have to make the whole world safe for democracy. Warren Hardy really believes that it's up to every nation to pick the type of government they want. And he says this even as, as president, that our responsibility, yes, is to make the world safe and bring peace to it, but is it really our responsibility to pick out the kind of government one nation wants? Um, do, we, do they have to do what the United States is doing? And he didn't really think they did. Following the Allies winning the war in 1918, Wilson goes to France to rewrite the map of the world and to create the League of Nations, the failed precursor to the United Nations. But the League of Nations becomes the most hot-button issue in American politics in 1919 and 1920. Harding and the Republicans that control the Congress, like Henry Cabot Lodge, senator from Massachusetts, they're left out of the decision-making process, and a majority of the nation doesn't seem on board uh, with all of this League of Nations plan. Sherry talks about Harding and much of America's reservations in respect to Article 10 of the League Charter. Well, Harding got a lot of criticism for this during the campaign. He is not against the idea of a League of Nations or an association. What he's against as far as the League of Nations is Article 10. And Article 10 said that if a member of the League of Nations goes to war, as a member, you have to, too. He, like a lot of the Republicans at that time, said, wait a minute, we just got out of a war. And everyone by that time knew that <clears throat> alliances had caused the war, that nations had gone to war because another member had gone to war or someone they had an alliance with. And it's like a domino effect. So he was like, why do we want to get back into that same situation? He was among 
a group of senators who went to see Woodrow Wilson at the White House for clarification of Article 10. And they said, is it a moral obligation? Actually, Warren asked this question. Or is it a legal obligation that member nations go to war? And Woodrow Wilson only said, well, you've got to search your heart. No, we need something more <laughs> definitive than that. That's not going to work. And he is advocating that, yeah, we need some kind of an association of nations, but this isn't the right vehicle. This, this isn't it. 1919 and 1920 was a very difficult time in American history. It's important that you understand how chaotic the nation was at this time. Racial strife and racial violence at an all-time high. Domestic terrorism was rampant. Millions of troops are coming home, and that naturally creates kind of an unstable country. Not to mention the great influenza pandemic. It's much worse than the pandemic we're living with right now. So-called Spanish flu killed more than 650,000 Americans. It didn't just kill older Americans or the less healthy. It killed younger people in higher numbers. It didn't discriminate like this coronavirus does. We told you in the season preview episode back in May, uh, our book recommendation was John Barry's The Great Influenza. I mean, if you think Trump downplayed the pandemic, wait till you see how the Wilson administration handled it. Jim Robinall talks about how his opinion, my opinion as well, many other historians has changed about Woodrow Wilson, once considered a top five all-time president. Jim's family has a history at the top of the National Democratic Party for the last century. So this is not a partisan Republican ripping President Wilson. I grew up seeing him as a, uh, you know, a uh, hero, a hero president. Um, and he just had so many flaws that you, you can barely count them. Yeah. You know, he was an extreme racist coming from the South. Um, he threw all the blacks out of office when he came in. He, you know, he, he, he actually played that, that film, Birth of a Nation in the White House, which is just a hideous film. He was egotistical to the point where he fought with everybody. And this is the one thing I've said about the difference between Wilson and Hardy. Wilson saw, he saw people as his enemies who didn't agree with him. And Harding saw nothing but allies and potential friends. He wanted to build bridges with people, and he did in the Senate. But Wilson was egotistical, saw people as enemies. So when he went to Paris, now think about this. When he goes to Paris after the war, we had just spent all this capital and human capital to, to get in and help resolve that war. And he goes over to negotiate the peace. He does not take a senior Republican senator with him, let alone Lodge, who he should have taken, who was going to be the majority leader. And that's a big thing. In, 20, in 1918, we not only had the pandemic raging in the United States, killing 675,000 people. Uh, Wilson, by the way, gets the flu, the influenza, while he's in Paris, spikes a fever of like 103 degrees. And some people think he had a, a complication from that, was a minor stroke, perhaps. Uh, we, had a, we had a midterm election where people went out and voted in the height of the pandemic, voted in person. And they voted to change Congress from all Democratic to all Republican. So both the House, the House, the Republicans picked up 25 seats. They picked up a two-seat majority in the Senate. Knowing this, knowing this change of power, Wilson still went to Paris by himself to negotiate the peace and did not take a, a senior Republican statesman with him. Yeah. Could have taken William Howard Taft, who was very pro-League of Nations. He could have taken a lot of people with him. Uh, to gain that support. He did not. And so when he comes back, he then stubbornly 
fights the idea of any reservation um, to, the, to his league, which he had negotiated for six months while in Paris. One thing I realized in researching this election 100 years ago was just how familiar it felt to our current situation. The United States in 1920 was in a major economic depression. And like we said, racial strife and violence across the country was at a 20th century high. And oh yeah, they were pulling out of a murderous global pandemic, the Great Influenza. But the depression is noteworthy because of how the Harding administration would pull us out of it. We're joined once again this season by political scientist and scholar Mark Zachary Taylor from Georgia Tech to talk about the economic downturn of 1920-1921. Zach talks about just how bad things had gotten at the end of the Wilson administration, not just with the economy, but events like the bombing of Wall Street by still unidentified domestic terrorists in September 1920, the Palmer raids, the massive arrests and suspension of civil liberties by United States Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, partly in response to an attempted bombing of his own home, and how that would affect the electorate as they prepare to vote in the fall of 1920, a truly chaotic year that I think we can all relate to. Well, almost every war is followed by an economic contraction just because there's so much demand uh, for economic activity during the war. And when it ends, all that demand goes away and all the troops come home and need jobs. So you usually get at least a few months and often a year or two of uh, depression uh, or at least recession. And the uh, Wilson administration got that in spades and it really hits worse in 1920. In January 1920, the economy falls into this massive economic downturn that lasts throughout the remainder of Wilson's time in office and deep into Harding's first year. Uh, Overall, the economy shrank around two to three percent. Industrial production fell off 30 percent by summer 1921. Uh, Americans lost six percent of their wealth per capita. The stock market went down for two years straight with total losses uh, surpassing 50%. Interest rates went up to 7%, which was their highest level in 30 years at the time. Um, Imports, Europe began to recover. So American imports and exports uh, fell off by half. Uh, the, The war and the prostration of Europe had been a huge driver of American economic prosperity. And now that Europe was coming back online, we started falling, uh, falling down. Uh, but we, the Wilson administration was still paying for all these huge military contracts, which ate up about a third of the federal budget. So the country's finances were in a wreck. Uh, the federal debt was around, uh, it, it had been $1.2 billion before the war, about $12 per person. Now it was $24 billion in 1920. Uh, around 228 per capita. And I should say, oh, I said before the war, 1916. So before America went into the war, uh, the debt was was $12 per capita, and now it was 20 times that in 1920. And unemployment in 1921 hit over 16%, and wages were falling. So everything was just havoc. At the same time, you had massive labor strikes. You had uh, anarchists and communists. Uh, bombing uh, elected officials all over the country. So there were terrorist strikes, massive FBI uh, crackdowns. And amidst all this, Wilson is sort of wasting away in the White House. It was after he had his massive stroke. So either he was just unreachable or he was obsessed with the um, uh, uh, getting the United States into the League of Nations, his big League of Nations plan, which the country was not happy with.
decides to throw his hat in the ring and run for president in 1920. His relationship with Carrie Phillips is over at that point, and despite a new and more scandalous affair that we'll discuss later, he enters the race. General Leonard Wood was the heavy favorite, having spent millions of dollars during the Republican primary. Harding had only won Ohio during the primary. He'd nearly quit the race. That was all he won. But May 1920, a month before the convention, he travels to Boston in a speech to the Home Market Club in Boston. He says what the country needs now is normalcy. Normalcy is a word. It was questioned by some pundits like he made it up, but he hits the nail on the head. It's exactly what the country wanted, normalcy. A voice said it's a slogan the Biden campaign could trot out 100 years later. As half the country seems to be looking for that today. We talked to Sherry Hall about this speech and the idea of normalcy. And you'll actually hear the speech from Harding himself in a clip after we speak with Sherry. He's been misinterpreted for the last hundred years by a lot of historians and authors about what he does mean by normalcy. One of the things that people need to realize is when Woodrow Wilson is in office those last two years, the country kind of shuts down. There's no plan in place. Wilson is so focused on the League of Nations and, and working in Europe, he's not paying attention to what's happening domestically. Normalcy, the way Warren Harding meant it was, let's get industry started, let's get the economy started, let's get back to a normal way of living where we're not looking over our shoulders every day to see what the next disaster is going to be. He just means let's get back to a normal way of living. Let's get, you know, go back to your jobs. Let's go go buy things again. Let's, let's get going again. That's what normalcy means. America's present need is not heroic, but healing. Not nostrums, but normalcy. Not revolution, but restoration. Not agitation, but adjustment. Not surgery, but serenity. Not the dramatic, but the dispassionate. Not experiments, but equipoise. Not submergence in internationality, but sustainment in triumphant nationality. In 1919, Theodore Roosevelt died unexpectedly. Many believed he would be the Republican nominee in 1920, but with TR's death, the nomination's wide open. As we neared the Republican convention in June in Chicago, it was anybody's guess who'd win. Jim Robinault disputes the, the idea, it's a popular idea, that Harding was chosen in a smoke-filled room by the evil party bosses. One way he refutes that is by showing me on our Zoom call uh, a New York Times article and the headline after TR's death that listed Harding as the favorite. There certainly were smoke-filled rooms in Chicago, but I've found no proof that Harding's nomination was the product of a late-night backroom deal. On the ninth ballot, he took the lead, and on the tenth ballot, he was the nominee. I really contest this smoke-filled room stuff. The fact that he doesn't do well in those primaries is not particularly significant to me. Um, he does go into that convention, Wood, and uh, there was a couple others who were kind of as seen as potential, but it was kind of still wide open. And I'll, I'll tell you this, this is what I think people miss. When Roosevelt dies in January of 1919, he was the guy everybody thought would be the nominee. I don't know if you can see this or not, if I put it up closely enough. You yeah. see there, it says Roosevelt upends the plans, but if you look in the middle, that says most talk of Hardy. Okay. That's the New so, York Times. This is the New York Times. This is January 7, 1919. What, what I'm trying to say is that he was very much liked in the Senate in particular by the other senators. He was seen as acceptable, not only to the regular party, but to the progressives. 
which is what this article is all about, about how Harding had cut this path for himself that made him acceptable to everybody. And when Roosevelt dies, the most talk is about Hardy. When he goes into that convention, the fact that he eventually comes out ahead after starting out behind, um, to me is not is overblown that it's this smoke-filled room that brings him up. He's always in the running. He's always thought of as a guy who is, uh, is a statesman and someone who would be a good leader of everyone. So this goes back to show you that a year and a half before that convention, talk of him was already on everybody's lips. 1920 was the pinnacle for Ohio in the presidency, the high watermark. No one would believe we'd never even have a major party nominee for the next 100 years at this point. Ohioans had owned the White House, and Democrats nominate an Ohioan too, Governor James Cox of Dayton. He was the owner of the Dayton Daily News and the founder of what we know today as Cox Communications. The Cox family, I read Forbes magazine, had the fifth richest family in America in 2016. Cox provides cable and internet, they own TV stations, newspapers, they even own Kelly Blue Book, autotrader.com. But it's super weird that two Ohioans with the same job, newspaper owners slash newspaper editors, are running for president. And we asked Sherry Hall just who was his opponent, James Cox. James Cox was sitting governor of Ohio in 1920 when he's running against Harding. He had been a U.S. representative, was a Wilson supporter, he was a the Democrat and believed wholeheartedly in the League of Nations. He is a newspaper owner, owns the Dayton Daily News and the Springfield News in Springfield, Ohio. I think the fact that you end up with two Ohio newspaper men points to two things. One is how important Ohio was if you were going to win the presidency. And number two, how esteemed the newspaper industry was in that that was the heyday of newspapering in that time period and it carried a lot of weight so i think those two things really are underscored when we look at that election cox and harding then are a little bit alike in that they have that same way of looking at different things from all angles and those ohio roots uh, jim cox is from a small town down around dayton so they both have that small town influence as well but Ohio is a swing state at that time. Republicans in particular didn't win the presidency without Ohio. Cox is not a shoe-in for the nomination. The Democrats at their convention vote 44 times before they select him. Um, those were the days when everything was debated and argued about on the floor of the convention. It wasn't all uh, nicely packaged with a ribbon like our conventions are today. Harding wins the nomination for the Demo or the Republicans on the 10th ballot. This is not the first time and, and not the last time I'll say this this season, but an Ohio presidential nominee chooses to run a front porch campaign. Harding stays in Marion and brings the country to him. He was always fond of, of President McKinley, who successfully had done that 24 years earlier. But he does this on a new level. He uses the media of the day, video, newsreel cameras, and celebrity endorsements to promote his campaign. His opponent, James M. Cox, chooses the assistant secretary of the Navy as his vice president with a famous last name, a young New York politician named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And a young FDR crisscrosses the country giving passionate speeches for the Democrats. This is a pre-polio Roosevelt, mind you. Sherry Hall tells us about the most exciting summer in the history of Marion, Ohio. We talk about the front porch campaign at the Harding home, which is still there and able to be toured on Mount Vernon Avenue. 
Harding took some criticism, even from Republican leaders at first, about wanting to do a front porch campaign. Um, they wanted him to get out and about and, and cover a lot of territory. Um, he's got a few reasons he wants to call to mind McKinley's candidacy. People thought he looked a little like McKinley, very noble looking, um, but the Roman nose, as they always called it for both of them. He liked that notion of calling to mind McKinley. Secondly, Florence Harding has uh, chronic kidney disease. And when it flares up, she is bedridden, sometimes weeks, months at a time. It's gonna be easier on her if they spend the bulk of the campaign at home where she has access to her doctors and she can uh, rest, although I don't see much evidence she rested much during the campaign. Hmm. Um, she, he also wants to show people that he comes from a small town. This is just at the uh, time when people are making that move from rural America to the bigger cities. We're just at that turning point. And a lot of people are going to come to Marion and think, wow, this looks a lot like my hometown. We have a courthouse that looks like that. We have Main Street. Albert Lasker, of course, uh, ad man from Chicago is going to craft a lot of this. He's going to make um, use of the newsreel cameras, which are filming a lot of things um, during the campaign. Those films are going to be distributed to movie theaters across the country. So wherever you are in the summer and fall of 1920, your news of the day before the feature film in your hometown theater, most likely you're gonna see pictures of Marion, Ohio. It's introducing the candidate to the people, showing you what he's like. Use of the entertainers, that was really Al Jolson's idea. Al Jolson, of course, a famous Broadway singer, dancer, uh, forms the Harding Coolidge Theatrical League. And he brings 60 members, um, Broadway stars, Hollywood stars, um, to Marion. People here, could not believe it. These movie stars joked around and sang a little and danced and Al Jolson debuts a campaign song. Harding likes it so well, he makes it his official campaign song. The Chicago Cubs came. Of course, that was because Wrigley was a Republican supporter. And ball teams traveled by train at that time. They're en route to the Northeast. They make a stop in Marion. They play an exhibition game against Kerrigan's Taylors, the local team. Uh, they loan Kerrigan's a, a battery, a pitcher, and a catcher. Um, the Cubs won uh, three to one, thank goodness, because that would be very embarrassing to lose <laughs> to Kerrigan's Taylors. But for some people, it's the first time they'd ever seen a pro baseball team in person. Um, and that only came about because Harding, a big baseball fan himself, said the only problem he had with the campaign is he didn't think he'd have time to see much baseball. White House, shine out like a lighthouse, and Mr. Harding, we've selected you. So it's Harding, lead the GOP, Harding. On to victory, we're here to make a fuss. Warren Harding, you're the man for us. I'm telling you, that Harding chorus will stick in your head. Hit the back 15-second button on your phone and, and give it another listen, and maybe, maybe one more after that.
not saying you're going to like it, but it will be stuck in your head. It's been annoying me for the last several days. As the election nears, Harding's campaign is dominating the news cycle. He appears to be on his way to a huge victory in November. Cox's commitment to Wilson and the League of Nations, as Wilson strictly wanted it, is dragging down his campaign. He's tied to it, as are all the Democrats. We talked to Jim Robinall about why Harding would blow out James Cox exactly 100 years ago. People were tired of Wilson. He had been in for eight years. And in fact, right before the 1918 midterms, he asked the American people to return an all-democratic Congress so that he wouldn't be, quote, embarrassed when he you know, went to the peace conference after the war. People said, well, in that case, we will give you a Republican Congress. You know, they, don't, they, they, they didn't like that. They didn't like the, all the privations of war. There was a lot, you know, like people couldn't get coal. Um, there was a lot of rationing. Um, there was this deep economic downturn, as we talked about, all these people having trouble finding jobs. I mean, unemployment was near 18%. I mean, it was, yeah. it was a, a difficult time. And I think that people were just ready to swing back from the progressive side of things, you know, the income tax. All those things were very unpopular. And um, so it was time, I think, for people to get a breath of fresh air. And that's exactly what Hardy represented to them. He was like the every, every man. And, you know, the Wilson administration also surveilled people and, you know, had the sedition. You know, you couldn't speak yeah. against the government. These sorts of things build up over time. And I think that's why you saw the big release and that huge margin of victory. Warren G. Hardy wins big. Anywhere you slice it, he becomes our 29th president. The popular vote, he nearly doubles Cox, 16 million to 9 million. 404 electoral votes to a little over 100 for Cox. He wins every state outside of the South. He even takes Tennessee, Missouri, West Virginia, Maryland, these border states. Every state out West and the East and the Midwest, the Plains, over 60% of the vote compared to only 34 for Cox. One of the biggest electoral landslides in history. Kyle Kondik, the political analyst and author from the Virginia Center for Politics, joins us for the umpteenth time to talk about the vote in Ohio. Kyle, the author of The Bellwether, Why Ohio Picks the President from 2016, a great book that looks at the history of presidential elections in Ohio. And he points out that Cox even loses Montgomery County. That's Dayton. That's his hometown. Harding wins 80 of 88 counties in Ohio. And that's a matchup between two Ohio presidential nominees. Kyle Connick tells us about Harding's route of James Cox and the role of German Americans and other Catholics in places like Cincinnati, really all over the state and all over the country. In 1920, Warren Harding uh, won almost every county in the state. And some of those traditionally Democratic areas uh, in Northwest Ohio that were kind of you know, German and or German Catholic, uh, a lot of those places voted for Harding too, I think in part because the um, the Democrats or the Democrats were, were associated with the war, uh, which of course was against Germany, and there was a lot of anti-German sentiment. Yeah. And so the vote for Harding was sort of a, uh, a rejection of that kind of sen sentiment. In fact, you have a state like Wisconsin, which is much more um, substantially German than, than Ohio was the time or is now, uh, and Wisconsin um, 
Wisconsin had basically never has never been as Republican um, in any election as it was in 1920. And so there was, a, um, you know, again, kind of a backlash against against Wilson in the aftermath of the war. And, and certainly it seemed like a lot of German Americans were leading that backlash. And so, you know, um, Cox won, uh, you know, scattered counties throughout the state, including his best county was, again, Holmes County, center of center of uh, Amish country. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, very, very scattered and, and, and Harding did great, particularly in northern Ohio and northeast Ohio, um, really, really dominating uh, in that in that part of the state after Wilson had really done pretty well in that area just four years prior. It's also another centennial anniversary in 2020, women's suffrage. PBS did a great documentary this summer called The Vote. Go find that from the American Experience folks on PBS.org. Two-part movie about women when they finally achieve the right to vote. And as they say, they didn't. They weren't granted the right to vote. They took it. And we did an episode last year that I'm real proud of, Ohio versus Suffrage. Go back and listen to it. It's, it's even on our YouTube page as well. Uh, if you look us up, we got a few episodes on there. If you're looking to have something on in the background at work or from the comfort of your home office, I guess. The patronizing comments made by men was that women voted for Harding because they thought he was better looking or that he looked presidential, which he really kind of did at the time. Some commented that he even looked like a Roman senator. We asked Sherry about the women's first presidential vote. Why did women vote for Harding? Or was their vote in line with the votes of men? And of course, women, yes, they, they played a huge role that year in the election. Women are going to vote for the very first time. Both of the campaigns, both the Cox and Harding campaigns, supported suffrage. It was inevitable by that time that it was going to happen. And Tennessee, of course, being the 36th state to ratify in August of 1920. Harding had a social justice day on October 1st. Members of the National Women's Party were featured, and a lot of the suffrage leaders were invited to come. And they sat down with Harding. They would do the same thing with Cox. They said, okay, what we want is more job opportunities. We want to be paid the same as men. We want opportunities opportunities in politics, we, and they had this whole Bill of Rights, so to speak, that they presented to both candidates. So when you think of even today, we're still working for women to be paid off the same as men in many aspects. And that was, you know, those requests were made 100 years ago, and we're still not quite there. Story is that Harding wins the election because the women voted for him because he stood looking. What they found was that most of the women then registered to vote in the same political party that their husbands did. And they found no big rush by the women to the Republican parties. Harding wins with both male and female votes. So it's not an overwhelming female vote for Harding. It's, yeah. it's both of them. When I was researching Cox and I found somebody in the Cox campaign a couple of days after the election saying that Oh, he must have won because of the women finding him to be good looking. So a little bit of sour grapes, perhaps. I don't know. Um, but there really is nothing to back it up. Harding takes office on March 4th, 1921. We check back in here with Zach Taylor from Georgia Tech about just how Harding took his slogan of normalcy into the Oval Office. It's a time of great change, and Harding offered this you know, this like return to a better time in American life, the late 1890s and early 20th century of William McKinley. Harding saw politics and the president as sort of consensus building. And he believed that 
the himself as, as a senator, as a president, he should be sort of cheerleading. He, he practiced the presidency almost as a uh, shuttle diplomacy position. So he would go around to the different departments, the different people in Congress, the different major interest groups, and he'd try and coordinate them together around a particular policy program of getting back to the 1890s, which he believed, at least the late 1890s, early 1900s, as sort of the peak of American economic power and greatness and security. Today, we sort of idealize the 1950s because we forget about a lot of the bad stuff that happened in the 1950s. So we think of the 1950s as these halcyon days of prosperity and peace and, and love. Um, that's how they saw the late 1890s, early 1900s uh, at the end of, uh, by the end of World War One, And people wanted to get back to that. Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson had really changed the presidency. They centralized a lot of power. They'd gone off and made all these uh, uh, big political speeches and talked about policy in the ways that presidents never had before. They tried to uh, uh, advance their own personal policy agendas, often against or over Congress's will. And this was sort of shocking to Americans. And then comes the war, which was a new kind of war. American was now entangling itself in foreign affairs with hundreds of thousands of troops and billions of dollars and lowering tariffs on trade and all these Im immigrants. And this all just seemed chaotic and crazy to conservatives and Republicans uh, at the end of the 1910s. And especially the Harding, he thought this was going to be, this would lead to communism and Bolshevism and depression. And he wanted to get us back to normalcy, which today sounds like a joke phrase and we laugh at it. But Americans in 1920 got it. They said, yes, we want to go back to those halcyon days of the 1890s. And this is what Harding promised. And it's what he delivered. He delivered balanced budgets. He brought the troops back home. He kept back on immigration. He did all these very conservative things that today we might quibble with, especially liberals and progressives, but at the time it was exactly what Americans wanted. One of Harding's big campaign themes was the promotion of peace following this terrible, costly world war. And he acts on that theme right away. Harding and his Secretary of State, Charles Evans Hughes, invite the world powers to Washington for a disarmament conference. These types of arms limitation treaties we're familiar with from the Cold War with the U.S. and the Soviets, SALT-1 and SALT-2 and... At the time, this is a revolutionary idea. No one had thought about limiting arms and weapons of war, WMDs, in the 1920s. But Harding was a visionary when it comes to this, and the conference was a total success. We talked to Jim Robinault, author of The Harding Affair, about the Washington Disarmament Conference of 1921, and we hear from Harding himself as he welcomes the delegates from across the globe to the conference. Yeah, again, go back and read his inaugural. You'll see it in there. Um, this is part of the reconstruction of the country and the world. You know, the, the single weapons of mass destruction that had, um, that had accelerated leading into the First World War was uh, battleships. The Germans wanted to become like the British in their Navy. And, right. and then you have the Japanese also. So this idea that these great, you know, weapons, um, had developed over time were not only threat to world peace, but they were also very expensive. I mean, this is a lot of money was being spent on this. And so Harding believed, and he says in his inaugural, that we should, in order to restore the world, we should engage in disarmament that is costing everybody so much, not just, you know, threatening the peace, but just the expense of all this. 
So they do the Washington Naval Conference, his Secretary of State, uh, Hughes, who had run on the Republican ticket in 1916, is the guy who leads that. But it's Harding's, Harding's idea to do this. And they agree to uh, disarmament. It's the first disarmament treaty in the world. And it is to limit the number of battleships. They actually sunk some battleships too as part of all this. Yeah, so did. it was really important milestone, the very first uh, world disarmament uh, treaty. Gentlemen of the conference, the United States welcomes you with unselfish hands. We harbor no fears. We have no sordid ends to serve. We suspect no enemy. We contemplate or apprehend no conquest. Content with what we have, we seek nothing which is another's. We only wish to do with you that finer, nobler thing which no nation can do alone. The world demands a sober contemplation of the existing order and the realization that there can be no cure without sacrifice, not by one of us, but by all of us, committing all of us to less preparation for war and more enjoyment of fortunate peace. One of history's biggest stains on the Wilson administration was the attack on free speech and civil liberties that was the Sedition Act of 1918. It forbid the use, and I quote, of disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the United States government's flag, its armed forces, or that caused others to view the American government or its institutions with contempt. That's a pretty broad law. Thousands of Americans are rounded up because of it, none more famously than Eugene Debs. Debs was the socialist leader of the early 20th century, kind of like the Bernie Sanders of his time. He ran for president. He garnered a million votes in 1912 against Wilson uh, and Taft and Roosevelt. He also ran against Harding in 1920. But he ran that campaign while locked behind bars. It was a speech in Northeast Ohio that landed him there. We talked to Jim Robinault about the Sedition Act, the imprisonment of Eugene Debs, and how our 29th president, Warren Harding, came to his rescue and the rescue of free speech advocates everywhere. He was in Canton. He was at a socialist picnic. The park is still there, by the way. I've gone to see it. And he got, on, he got up and spoke. It was a month after the Sedition Act had been passed. So you have the 1917 Espionage Act, which is classic espionage. You know, you can't give plans to the enemy, uh, military teams. But what was going on with, with the public, because so many German Americans had been involved, like Kerry Phillips in espionage and so forth. There was this real, we got to get the spies out of our, out of our nation. And so they over, they overdid it and they created the Sedition Act a year later in May of 18, which said you can't speak against the form of government. You can't speak against the military. You can't speak against the flag. It was really a frontal assault on free speech. So Debs knows this when he goes to give a speech a month later and in the audience is a government stenographer taking it all down his exact words. And he says, I, I can't say everything that I would want to say, but I'm not going to say anything I don't believe. And then he praised some guys who were in the jail for having, you know, uh, avoided the drafts and socialist comrades and uh, talked about it being essentially a capitalist war, all those sorts of things that were really political speech. I mean, and it, he wasn't really even directly violating the sedition act. He wasn't speaking against the form of government or anything like that. But yet he is, uh, they take that back to Washington. Washington says, this isn't enough, but the local uh, US attorney here in Cleveland says, 
it's enough. They arrest him a couple of days later. Um, and you know, you're, you're threatened with 10 to 20 years in prison for free speech. Yeah. Uh, he is, he, he is convicted um, in uh, here in Cleveland in September of 1918, which by the way is right when the pandemic is about to start and he's gonna be sent to a prison. And he's a guy of, you know, always delicate health actually. Um, this horrible prison in Atlanta. It's a wonder he didn't die. He gets convicted, he gives this very famous speech uh, before his sentencing with the judge that, you know, if anyone, is, if, if anyone is in prison, I am not free kind of thing. It's really this beautiful speech um, that is one of seen now as iconic about the First Amendment and so forth. And, you know, he's convicted, um, he appeals, he goes up to the Supreme Court, and of all people, Oliver Wendell Holmes affirms the conviction. So he's in bad straits because he's now going to the federal prison, which he does, in Atlanta, he's gonna be there for 10 years uh, unless somebody lets him out. And the guy who lets him out is Warren Harding who exercises, he doesn't pardon him, he gives him a commutation of his sentence. And he does it right around uh, Christmas time, hasn't come to the White House. It's one of the first things he does is to look into all of the political prisoners and he eventually frees them all. Um, Wilson had denied any pardon for Debs. So again, it's this contrast between those those two personalities that is uh, that shows to me, you know, that Hardy was a much better president than Woodrow Wilson. The Tulsa race massacre is believed to be one of the worst incidents of racial violence in American history. From May 31st to June 1st in 1921, as many as 300 people were killed, hundreds were injured, and thousands of buildings were destroyed. You hear that clip about the Tulsa massacre the two days in the spring of 1921, just after Harding took office, where hundreds of black residents of Tulsa were killed by white residents. The neighborhood of Greenwood was known as Black Wall Street because of how many black-owned businesses had thrived in the area. But it was all destroyed, all of it. As we approach this terrible 100th anniversary, more is being found out even today about that event in American history. Mass graves still being uncovered. The late 1910s and early 1920s are a time of immense racial violence in this country on a much bigger scale than we see today. It was a nationwide epidemic. Harding takes office in this maelstrom of racism. He gets zero credit as a civil rights president, but on October 21st, 1921, that's exactly who he is when he visits a crowd of tens of thousands of white and black Americans in Birmingham, Alabama. The crowds were separated by a fence, by race, and he goes to the Deep South and he tells them to their face that their racism is wrong. I'd never heard of this event until I talked to Jim, and really Harding mostly focuses on equality at the ballot box, but he says, I can say to you, the people of the South, both white and black, that the time has passed when you are entitled to assume that the problem of races is peculiarly and particularly your problem. It's the problem of democracy everywhere. If we mean the things we say about democracy, it's the ideal political state. Whether you like it or not, our democracy is a lie unless you stand for that equality. We talked to Jim Robinall, and he tells us about Warren G. Harding, the civil rights president. You know, it's important to kind of look at the context of that talk. So Harding gets uh, inaugurated in March. Back then, that's our presidents were March 4th. That was the, in the Constitution of 1921. 
A few months later in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there is one of the worst greatest riots in American history. And we've now started to look back at how many people were actually killed. Mass graves, you know, have been uncovered just within the last year. This was this wholesale slaughter of, of a black community in, in Tulsa. Um, and that came on the backs of just, you know, this endemic problem of lynchings, particularly in the South. So when all these soldiers came back, including 400,000 who were African-Americans, there was this tremendous white backlash um, that rose up because of all that. Um, and so the lynchings were on the rise. One of the things that was put in the Republican platform when Harding was nominated was an, you know, to support anti-lynching legislation federal legislation that would punish cities and states with fines and so forth if lynching happened in their, in their cities. Um, and so the Republicans supported that. Harding then, this is four months after Tulsa, goes to Birmingham, Alabama. He's the first president to go into the Deep South after the Civil War. The first president to go into the Deep South. And he gives a speech, it's the 50th anniversary of Birmingham's birth. As a, as a city, which is interesting. I've been looking at all this. Birmingham wasn't around during the Civil War. Yeah, that is weird. Uh, so anyway, he goes down to give this speech in, of all places, Wilson Park. Um, and um, he says, you know, you got, you, you're great. Your progress here is great. Your industry is great. But you'd be even better if you allow Blacks to have political equality. And you'd be even better if you supported the anti-lynching law um, that is a stain on our civilization. He was booed by the whites. He was cheered by the blacks. The, the audience was separated black and white by a, a chain link fence. Um, and this was a moment. This, people talk about Warren Hardy and they repeatedly say Teapot Dome, which he had nothing to do with. Nobody says Birmingham. Nobody says Dems. You know, nobody says all of these things that were great things that he did. I mean, great things that he did. And that was one of them. That speech in, in Birmingham, uh, there should be a great statue of him in Birmingham constructed um, of him, you know, pushing for uh, political equality for, for African Americans. Harding's cabinet had some really effective administrators. Herbert Hoover. Charles Dawes with the newly created Office of the Budget. We talked about Secretary of State Charles Evans Hughes. Andrew Mellon, considered one of the best secretaries of the Treasury you've ever had. He cut taxes to all Americans. They jumpstart the economy. They pull us out of this post-war depression. Harding balances the budget with the help of Charles Dawes in Ohio, and we discussed in our most uh, almost most recent Ohio vs. Contenders episode. He would go on to become Coolidge's vice president. Harding signs the Federal Highway Bill, over $160 million in 1920s dollars, to build roads across the country. Harding understood automobiles were going to revolutionize modern life, and he made that investment. We asked Zach Taylor if the Harding administration's pro-business policies are directly responsible for the economic boom known as the Roaring Twenties. And it was his cabinet who came up with this policy specifics, and then he would play the role of the politician and organize government around getting these passed through Congress and then implemented in his department. And they did bring the country back to normal. So we did get these decreases in immigration, labor strikes dropped off to historical lows. Uh, there was a real boom period, the boom period of the 20s, the roaring 20s, 
uh, could find in their policy origins the Harding administration. And when Harding dies, Calvin Coolidge basically just carries on. Calvin Coolidge's administration is basically an extension of the Harding administration. So to a certain extent, yes, he gets that credit. You might be asking yourself, you know, how is this guy such a lowly rated president, Alex? And that's a good question. But there's also a lot of scandals that take place in the Harding administration. Harding liked to have a drink. He liked to play cards for money. He liked women. But he was the president during Prohibition. Not his choice. It was in place when he took office. But the president, nonetheless, he privately flaunts the Prohibition laws. Inside his own Justice Department, his trusted advisor, Harry Doherty, the attorney general from Washington Courthouse, Ohio, in Fayette County, he had scandals involving Prohibition. His aide, Jess Smith, who would later die of an alleged suicide when their legal practices were uncovered, he was working uh, on behalf of bootleggers. Go listen to our episode of Hiver's Bootlegging about Cincinnati's George Remus, the biggest bootlegger of Prohibition. He gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to bribes to Jess Smith. There's no way Harry Doherty, the AG, did not know about this. Jess Smith, also from Washington Courthouse, that was his most trusted advisor. And Doherty was Harding's most trusted advisor. We don't have enough time to get into this one, but go listen to that episode on Prohibition. Again, Ohio versus bootlegging about George Remus. But an even bigger scandal certainly uh, was not something that Harding knew about. The Veterans Affairs scandal involved his friend Charles Forbes. Uh, He was running the Veterans Bureau. And the rumor is that Harding found out about a scheme and he called Forbes into the uh, office and he physically like assaults him. He shakes him in the Oval Office. We asked Sherry Hall about the Veterans Department scandal. Veterans Bureau scandal involved Charles Forbes, as you said, who was director. Forbes was somebody that the Hardings met in Hawaii in 1915, and both of them took a liking to, particularly Florence. And Harding decides to make him director of the newly formed Veterans Bureau. By January of 23, he is hearing rumors that Forbes is running kind of a black market operation. He's taking the medical supplies that have been liquidated from Europe after the war, which are stored in warehouses along the East Coast. And he's running kind of a bargain basement uh, operation where he's selling things that cut great prices. He also allegedly is directing contracts to build new veterans hospitals, um, showing favoritism there. It's not doing that properly. Harding calls him to the White House and presents him with this evidence, asks for his resignation. The story is various variations, but basically he was so angry with Forbes that he shook him like a dog. There's, I don't know if it's true or not. It's a great story. I think it'd be fun if he had done that. So I like to believe he did that. Um, He asked for Forbes' resignation. And Forbes says, okay, but I want to go to England first. And then I'll send you the resignation. And Harding, now this is where we get into one of his um, weak spots. He doesn't want to humiliate people in any way. So... He lets him do that. And Forbes sends him his resignation. So Forbes is done. Harding appoints a replacement, but people kind of forget that in this story. In Harding's mind, okay, let's just get on with the business of the people here. Forbes, let's get you out of the way. Let's get somebody else in and let's just keep 
working toward building veterans hospitals and working on what we're supposed to be doing. What he should have done, of course, is call for a congressional investigation of Forbes and really hung him out to dry. When you're president, no, he shouldn't have done that. He should have really made an example of him. The um, investigation into that opens just two months after he dies. In 1923, President Warren G. Harding and First Lady Florence are on their way to Alaska. The only surviving footage shows the president being received with great pomp and ceremony. But once he gets to Alaska, everything is far more relaxed. He's here to open the brand new Alaska Railroad. Starting in Seward, they set off on the 470-mile journey north. In the summer of 1923, the Hardings take the first presidential trip to the Alaskan Territory. It's a huge endeavor. You hear the clip, and Harding is fed it all across the country as he makes his way out west. He's at the height of his popularity. The economy's surging. He's achieved that return to normal in America that he had promised. And many are giving him great odds to get reelected in 1924. The election's just a year away. We talked to Sherry Hall about this trip out west. In June of 23, he and Florence, uh, some cabinet members, um, about 100 people, they start off on a cross-country trip. West. The goal is Alaska, but since you have to go by train and then a ship to get to Alaska, they decide, well, we'll make this, well, you can give some speeches along the way and kind of check in with the American people, which he's very interested in doing. Uh, I think like most presidents, he's feeling kind of cooped up in the White House. Um, he wants to get out and talk to the people. He's only supposed to give about nine speeches going west, and this turned into dozens and dozens of speeches. He is predicting statehood in 1923 for Alaska, which is interesting. And when he leaves there, he is extremely excited about what he's learned. And he says he's excited to go back to Washington and craft new policy, which will balance this use of natural resources with conservation. But at the end of July of 1923, there's something wrong with the president. It was his heart, whether it was the stress of the cross-country, cross-continental trip, or the stress of the looming scandals in multiple cabinet offices. He gets fatigued playing golf in Washington. He recovers and he gives a speech to 25,000 people in Seattle at the University of Washington football stadium. But he goes to the hospital following the speech. And then he cancels an appearance in Portland. Then the presidential train races off to San Francisco. We talked to Sherry Hall about the sudden, shocking death of our 29th president on August 2nd, 1923, in San Francisco, California. We know now that he was suffering with symptoms of heart disease before yeah. he left on the trip. He was complaining of shortness of breath. He was complaining about um, he couldn't sleep lying down because of the pressure on his chest. He can't sleep. He's got indigestion. Uh, he's always had high blood pressure since he was in his 20s. So we can see he, he's got heart problems, but it was not obvious back then. The decision is made to cancel all of their West Coast speeches and go directly to San Francisco. Uh, in San Francisco, there's a cardiologist waiting. Uh, Dr. Joel Boone, who is the naval doctor on the train, could 
tell that the president had an enlarged heart. They go directly to San Francisco and he is put in the presidential suite on the eighth floor of the Palace Hotel. Um, over the next few days, they're monitoring him. There's not much they can do, but on the night of August 2nd at 7.30 p.m., uh, as Mrs. Harding's reading a magazine article to him, he gives a little shudder and he dies. It took the nation absolutely by surprise. Uh, he was a very popular president. country mourns Harding's death. He was a beloved and popular president. He's buried in Marion, later interred at the Imparting Memorial, which I strongly suggest you visit. It's an impressive sight for sure. Me and Miss Ohio the World made a trip a few years back there on a fall Sunday afternoon, probably on a Browns bye week. But before his body is cooled, the Harding legacy is under attack, an attack that would desecrate his presidency, leave his legacy in ruins, where for the most part it still remains, uh, especially among the drive-by presidential historians. We're over an hour in, and we've yet to mention the Teapot Dome scandal. This is the biggest scandal of his presidency. Unlike Watergate, though it doesn't directly involve the president, I'm confident saying that he did not benefit from the Teapot Dome at all. Harding was a pretty rich guy, as his wife uh, was as well when he was president. Money's not a concern of his. There's no real ties to it. It was his Secretary of the Interior, Albert Fall, a popular Western senator, that was at the center of Teapot Dome. We asked both Sherry and then Jim, what was the Teapot Dome scandal, and who was Secretary of the Interior Albert Fall, the first cabinet secretary to be sent to prison? Teapot Dome is a real place, Teapot Dome, Wyoming, and it was owned by the government and it had oil reserves on it. There wasn't anything at all unusual about the U.S. government leasing oil lands to private companies. We do that, we've done that still today. The 1920 General Leasing Act under Wilson allows that to happen. So Albert Fall, Secretary of the Interior, who was very popular, you're right, he was unanimously confirmed. What happens is he is accused, and this is after Harding dies, so we have to remember that. Um, he is accused of steering leases to private oil companies without the open bid process. There are two oilmen, uh, Sinclair and Doheny, who get uh, lucrative leases at Teapot Dome in Elk Hills, California. Investigation to Teapot Dome happens about the same time that the investigation into the Veterans Bureau is occurring. So we have dueling investigations. Albert Fall is accused of taking a $100,000 bribe from Sinclair and Doheny in exchange for the oil leases. There are several trials. The first one, he's acquitted. Um, There's several trials. This thing stretches all the way through the 20s. In the very end, Albert Fall is found guilty of accepting the bribe. Sinclair and Doheny are acquitted of giving him the bribe, which of course makes no sense. So Albert Fall, though, becomes the first cabinet member to go to prison. He spends just a few months there. He is broken health-wise. There is nothing pointing to anything that Harding did. In the news, all of the 20s, nobody really knew after a while what it was about. Just like today, if you ask people what 
teapot dome is, well, I know it was bad, I know it's scandal, but I don't know what it was. When you look at it in comparison to a lot of things that have happened since, it's pretty small. And I think Harding was starting to get ideas about what was happening with that before he died. But let, let me just say a moment about Albert Fall. Albert Fall was put into Harding's cabinet because he was a senator from New Mexico and Harding was trying to have his cabinet geographically expressed, you know, people from different regions. He was known in the Senate and very much liked in the Senate as the expert on Mexico, which was one of our biggest foreign policy issues. Yeah. And so Harding puts him in the cabinet. Um, and when he, when he goes to Congress to tell him about who he's going to put in his cabinet, and I believe this is the only time this ever happened, by acclamation, he was confirmed by the Senate on the floor when Harding announced it. Standing ovation. Everybody thinks Paul is a good guy to put in the cabinet. So if Harding ends up being wrong about his character, um, then 99 senators were wrong. I think he was a, a bad guy, and yet it's the thing that hangs around his neck in history, and it's unfair. And the hits just kept on coming for the Harding legacy. Coolidge wins an easy election in 1924, but he's distanced himself from his predecessor. Sherry walks us through how the scandals and tell-all books, some true, some not, continued the trashing of Warren Harding's presidency and how it cements his reputation as a corrupt and incompetent chief executive. After he died, like we talked about, there were these investigations into Teapot Dome and the Veterans Bureau. People very quickly forgot about the accomplishments the administration had made because it was more scintillating to, I think, speculate about what role this president might have had in the Tadri situations here. The main thing affecting his reputation at this point is he died and lost the ability to defend himself, to speak, to address anything, whatever. Um, Mrs. Harding dies 15 months later. Um, she was extremely upset about what was being said about her husband. So you have his former attorney general, Harry Doherty, who's a little suspect to begin with, writing a book about <laughs> the Ohio gang. You know, he took credit for everything and, of course, distanced himself from things he didn't want to be associated with. You have Gaston Means wrote a book in yeah. 1930, um, The Strange Death of President Harding. And this is where you first get the myth that Florence Harding poisoned her husband. You have all these myths put into the general population. So then you have the affairs. One was uh, Nan Britton, who uh, in 1927 writes um, The President's Daughter. Then in the early 60s, there was a trove of letters discovered in the home of a Marian woman, uh, Carrie Phillips. And these were all written in Harding's hand, showing that there was a relationship between the two of them, uh, both of whom were married, about a 10-year on-again, off-again relationship. I think people focus on those, those relationships because they're easy. It wasn't half as fun to talk about Harding's role in setting up the Washington Disarmament Conference <laughs> as it was to speculate about some sort of affair he had. We're going to play you a clip from President Herbert Hoover in 1931 at the dedication of the Harding Memorial in Marion, Ohio. It's a packed crowd in that giant park in front of the memorial. Uh, but the memorial had been finished four years earlier, and it just sat there. Calvin Coolidge would not come dedicate it. 
1927, Harding was being dragged through the mud. The same year as his 20-something-year-old mistress, Nan Britton, released her sexually explicit best-selling memoir, The President's Daughter, about their affair and their subsequent child. Teapot Dome was still going on. The dedication would be put on hold until Hoover finally agrees to speak in 1931. He comes to Marion. What he says was the feeling of many Republicans at the time, that Harding was the victim of his corrupt friends. I believe he was, but this is why you don't load your cabinet with personal friends. You make sure you bring on the best people, not just your cronies. Warren Harding had a dim realization that he had been betrayed by a few of the men to whom he had trusted, by men whom he had believed were his devoted friends. It was later proved in the courts of the land that these men had betrayed not alone the friendship and trust of their staunch and loyal friend, but they had betrayed their country. That was the tragedy in the life of Warren Harding. Warren Harding gave his life in worthy accomplishment for his country. He was a man of delicate sense of honor, of sympathetic heart, of transcendent gentleness of soul, who reached out for friendship in his every thought and deed. Jim Robinald speaks to us about why Harding's presidency is misinterpreted, or at least underrated. Jim blames much of this on the Kerry Phillips letters, the Nan Britton sex scandals. There are other presidencies with similar issues that are not dogged by this to the point where the president has essentially been blackballed by the presidential rankings. JFK, Thomas Jefferson, Grover Cleveland had a child out of wedlock. Bill Clinton more recently with his scandals. Uh, his legacy certainly has suffered and some would say rightfully so for his infidelities, but it is curious how much of an impact it's had on Harding's legacy. We asked Jim Robinault why he thinks that is. As Lynn manuel Miranda says, it does matter who lives, who dies, who tells your story. You know, it's, it's one of the problems of his legacy. He was, to me, in some ways, an exceptional president. Um, and all of that is buried under um, the president's daughter, uh, his affairs with women, and then this whole Ohio gang drinking, gambling during yeah. COVID type stuff. His legacy really should be what his two year, two year, two and a half years in the presidency were about in his Senate record, both too. For example, if he voted against the Sedition Act that put Eugene Debs in prison for just political speech. So there's a lot of good things to say about him, but things happen like uh, Nan Britton writing her book, The President's Daughter in 1927, it was sensational. It was, you know, him having sex with her in his Senate office to conceive their daughter, him having sex with her in the White House. It was just the kind of thing that totally tarnished his reputation and overran everything that he had done. So that when these, you know, part of the reason I wrote The Harding Affair, I, I told the Hardings this, was I wanted to get ahead of the sensationalists who were going to look at these letters, which do have a lot of sex in them, explicit sex, and talk about the bigger story of, you know, the going to war and what was going on at that time. And, you know, Kerry Phillips and, um, you know, everything about him leading into that, which is what that book is about. Um, but it just, you can't help a national press. They want to go directly to the sensational stuff. So when those letters came yeah. out in 2014, it was all about, you know, the, the sex comments, nothing about their fight over the war and what that meant for the United States and, and how everybody should view that and view him. Um, so it's, it's difficult to, to get around that. We really live in a, a world uh, that wants to look at the sensational and that's what happened with his letters. 
the Harding Presidential Center and Library in Marion, Ohio, has actually been pushed back due to COVID. It's set to open on March 4th, 2021, exactly 100 years after his inauguration. I'm really excited about this. We've been working on this since I came on the board of the Ohio History Connection. We talk one last time with Sherry about what visitors can expect at the Presidential Center, how this new building can provide some of the context about Harding's presidency. Sherry assures us they'll present everything, warts and all, about Warren G. We'll let you decide, the American public, make an informed decision about what should be the legacy of our 29th president, Marion, Ohio's own Warren G. Harding. And they're starting to see that there's more to this man and to this presidency than they knew. One of the reasons, of course, that we are building a presidential library so people can get the full story for the first time. It's on the same, um, in the same compound, I'll say, as the Harding Home. It's run by the Ohio History Connection, the new name of the Ohio Historical Society. We've always known that we needed more space. So we announced this project in 2016. The, it's a presidential library in all effects and purposes. In the building, we have an event space, we have an exhibit gallery, gift shop. Um, we will be adding a wing for a research center onto it as a phase two. It has the presidential seal on the floor of the lobby. Um, it's a beautiful building and it's going to really, the exhibit gallery will give people um, a lot more depth than we were able to in the confines of a house tour. Um, we want people to know the entire story and we'll have the story of the two affairs in here we'll have teapot dome we'll have the whole shebang but we're also going to talk about what was that veterans bureau what did it accomplish how did it help disabled veterans we will talk about the bureau of the budget and streamlining federal purchases so that you yeah. didn't have duplication there will be another side to the story and we'll examine the legacy. What went wrong and where is it now? And we'll invite our visitors to form their own opinions. We're just gonna give people the facts. They can form their own opinions about what they think of this president and that administration. But we want you to base it on the facts. book recommendation is The Harding Affair, Love and Espionage During the Great War, by our guest and great American, James Robinault. It's published in 2009. Jim had access to those letters to Carrie Phillips for the rest of the world. And he crafted this unknown history about Harding, whether his mistress was a German spy and the intrigue of their relationship, their uncoupling, and just domestic spycraft during the First World War, and then Harding's rise to the presidency. Again, there's a link in the show notes to go buy that book. I've read it twice. Really enjoyed it. There's a, a forward by our previous guest, John Dean, the famous Watergate whistleblower. Uh, he grew up in Marion. He was a paper boy for the Marion Star as a kid. Go back and listen to one of my favorite episodes, Ohio vs. Watergate, where we sat down with Jim Robinault and John Dean to discuss the greatest political scandal of the 20th century, Watergate. Teapot Dome doesn't really hold a candle to that scandal, but we asked Jim to talk about the book but we want to hold back a lot of the story because you need to read it yourself. But was Harding really in love with a German spy? I think we asked him to talk about Carrie Phillips and her role in what I said was in that book. That book, by that you mean 
the Harding Affair, Love and Espionage during the Great War. That's it. That's one of my favorite books. She, as I said, went to Berlin, became very pro-German. I believe she and her daughter were both uh, trying to find out how quickly the U.S. was going to be uh, mobilizing and getting into the war. And so she went to a camp with her daughter in Long Island. What are two Marian women doing in Long Island, right outside of camp when it opens in the summer, September of 1917, when we get in the war? And, you know, there's like 40,000 people coming to be trained. And the Germans want to know how fast the Americans are going to get into the war uh, because the uh, they want to do a big spring counteroffensive or offensive, which they do to knock out France before the Americans can get there. So this is all tied together. The German, uh, you know, women spying for the Germans and essentially going to dances with the officers, kind of like, so when are you shipping out? You know, kind of, <laughs> it's literally what it is. And and so that's what happens with her. She is followed by U.S. intelligence. And they end up telling Harding that, you know, um, they confront him and say, you know, we think this woman is, is being paid by the German government and that she's involved in, she and her daughter are both involved. And so I, you know, I've got some of these things that show the, the uh, army intelligence coming to Harding in, in the fall of 1917 saying, what's up with this one? You know, you know her, he finally tells her to knock it off, actually writes a desperate letter to Jim Phillips, her husband, to tell her to knock it off, whatever she's doing. And I think that's the reason she keeps these letters, frankly. I really think that she keeps them as insurance so she won't be arrested. And I think that's why she keeps them for the rest of her life, too. Uh, it's really, you know, uh, it's interesting. That'll do it. It's one of our longest episodes ever. Uh, but we'd rather do it all in one episode. So you only have to download one pod. It seems more people listen to a single episode than the two-parters that we've done. Uh, email us if you disagree or if you have any questions about the show. Or even if you want to just buy one of our Ohio V the World t-shirts, email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. We're heading down the back stretch here of Season 5, Ohio vs. the Presidency. Next episode, we have amazing guests from literally all over the country to talk about our 23rd president, one of the most unknown residents of the White House, Benjamin Harrison. I did not know anything about him when I started researching Little Ben last year, but now we're experts, and we talk to the real experts in episode 10, so look forward to that one. Thanks for joining us. Uh, the best thing you can do is share the show uh, with your friends on Facebook, Instagram, uh, where Instagram, Ohio V The World Podcast, on Twitter, at Ohio V The World, or just tell a friend during your next you know Zoom happy hour or socially distanced hangout. Uh, it's just so great to have so many of you listen to the show. It's really cool. We'll keep working hard. We'll see you next time on Ohio vs. the World. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, 
Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.